The epistle for this second Sunday after Epiphany is taken from the 12th chapter of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Brethren, we have gifts differing according to the grace that has been given us, such as prophecy to be used according to the proportion of faith or ministry in ministering, or he who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhorting, he who gives in simplicity, he who presides with carefulness, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without pretense. Hate what is evil. Hold to what is good. Love one another with fraternal charity, anticipating one another with honor. Be not slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope. Be patient in tribulation, persevering in prayer. Share the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, Bless, do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of one mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but condescend to the lowly. Please stand for the gospel. The gospel is taken from the second chapter of the gospel of St. John. At that time, a marriage took place at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now Jesus, too, was invited to the marriage, and also his disciples. And the wine having run short, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, What wouldst thou have me do, woman? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the attendants, Do whatever he tells you. Now six stone water jars were placed there after the Jewish manner of purification, each holding two or three measures. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And Jesus said to them, Draw out now and take to the chief steward. And they took it to him. Now when the chief steward had tasted the water after it had become wine, not knowing whence it was, though the attendants who had drawn the water knew, the chief steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at first sets forth the good wine, and when they have drunk freely, then that which is poor but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This first of his signs, Jesus worked at Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Please be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. My dear faithful, when God created Adam, he placed him, in the, the Garden of Paradise, and he told him to tend in the garden, to work the garden, to take care of it, to guard it, and also to, to take pleasure in the garden. Then he also took Adam uh, towards the, the animals, and he, he said to Adam that, that he, Adam had the job of naming all the animals. And what's striking is that is that God had Adam do all these things. He gave all these instructions and had Adam do these things before he created Eve. And I think there were two reasons for this. Um, the, the first reason is, is that God wanted to indicate clearly to Adam the role that he would play, the, the authority that he had before he brought along his spouse, indicate the authority that, that he was to exercise. But another reason for this is that when, when God is going over the duties of Adam to him, and he's thinking about what he has to accomplish, for him to realize that he is not going to be able to do it by himself, that, that 
he is he, he needed to sense his own low, uh, loneliness and isolation. And so, um, after having done these things, and, and, and Adam has, has named the animals and so on, God says, it is not good for man to be alone. Let us make a him a helpmate like unto himself. It is not good for man to be alone. And in another place, Scripture says, they solely, woe to those who are alone. Man by himself is incomplete. He's not able to fulfill his role. Perhaps he could take care of the garden, but he could not take care of the human race. There would be no human race. There would be no fathers. There would be no mothers. If God had not created for Adam a helpmate like unto himself. Man alone is not enough. Woman alone is not enough. Both are needed for the human race. Both have something to provide that the other does not have. God made men and women to be complementary, such that each has possesses something that the other does not possess. And so when the two of them come together, when they uh, become married, together they are something greater than the mere sum of their respective powers. They, they have a power that exists only in their union, only together, and cannot exist without their union. They have the power to form a family, to be a family. And we know that, that if God had, had left Adam to himself, um, probably would not have been good for Adam. We would not only call him the first man, we would call him the first bachelor with all of the negative connotations which that would imply. When we think of, of confirmed bachelors, we, we think of them living as a kind of an eccentric and, um, well, somewhat selfish existence. We know that, that if Adam had been left alone, he would be wholly occupied with his own affairs and his own pursuits. And, it, and we can see that it was important that God give Adam some means of looking outside of himself, for, for God to give Adam interests that were bigger than himself. He did not want Adam to be selfish. And so it was important for, for God to provide to Adam and, and really to, to the human race, to, to every person, um, the possibility of pursuing a path in life in which, in which each individual person can invest themselves completely in something bigger than themselves, something that is not themselves and something that's much bigger than themselves. And well, each, each one of us, we, we have to find some way to give ourselves in our lives. We have to find some way to go out of ourselves, to, to sacrifice ourselves for, for something more than our own selfish interests. We have to find a way, says our Lord, to lose our life. He who loses his life will find it. He who finds his life will, will lose it. We have to find a way to lose our life. And so God designed marriage um, for that. For, for Adam to lose himself in his family. And, and Adam knows this. Adam, when he's presented with this helpmate, he, 
he makes this um, saying, he, he, he says the significance, he, he speaks about the significance of his marriage with Eve. He says, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall be two in one flesh. So what he's saying is that, that God draws a couple together so that they can lose themselves in one another. They can somehow be merged one with the other into some third thing that is not themselves. It is not either the man or the woman, but is some third thing. They have, they form a new identity, a family. So God helps the couple to be unselfish by, on the one hand, making them serve an entity that is not themselves, that is something bigger than themselves and in something to which they have to give themselves completely. On the other hand, he draws them into it. He gives them some sort of self-interest in it by the fact that he makes a family to be com- composed of themselves. Now, the, they, they are the, the units of the family that, that, that form it, and also the children that come from the family are their own blood. So they are drawn by their own interests to give themselves for their family, seeing that they are part of it and that their own children are come from them, are made by them. But in the end, you know, the, 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 the man and the wife, they have to leave themselves in order to serve the needs of the family. And we may ask ourselves, and this is a very important question, what are the boundaries of the service that a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, should provide in their family? How much should they give themselves? And as I mentioned, it's so important for, for the, the husband and the wife to, to understand that really there should be no boundaries. They, they, that it's, it's very important for a couple not to set limits on their willingness to sacrifice themselves for their family. Do you know what will be demanded of you in the future with regards to your husband or your wife or your children? You don't. You don't know what may be required of you. You're just expected from the very beginning to commit yourself that whatever you are going to need be asked, be called upon to do, whatever sacrifices you're going to be asked to make on behalf of your family, that you will be willing to, to do them. You could sort of sign a blank check when, when you get married. You commit yourself to be willing to do whatever is necessary for the good of your family in your marriage. And that's why when you get married, um, there's that formula that, that we all know where, where the marriage ceremony itself throws before you, p- puts before your eyes various circumstances in which your marriage might be lived out. And you say, I am going to be faithful and I'm going to give myself in all those cir- circumstances. If there's sickness, if there's health, if there's riches, if there's poverty, either whatever, whatever the situation may be, I am going to serve my family. We have such beautiful example today in the gospel of an unselfish spouse, Our Lady, 
who is, who is a model of the, the perfect mother, um, the perfect wife. And this scene, like all scenes of the gospel, is, it does not happen by random. It's not a mistake. It is specifically given to us as a gift from God, as an example to you, as, as an example to married couples of this spirit of unselfishness that you must have in your marriage. Our Lady is that attentive mother. She's that attentive wife who is, is not saying to herself, I'm only going to limit myself to doing this or that and nothing more. These are the boundaries of the sacrifice of, of my level of giving in my state in life. And I'm not, I'm going to draw this line in the sand and I'm not going to go past that. This is not the attitude of Our Lady. We look at this wedding feast and we, we perhaps think to ourselves, what's going on here? Um, why is it that the mother of God, the queen of heaven, has to intervene? To resolve the situation, was there no one else around to notice that the the wine was short? Was was there no one else who could step forward and and say, "Look, um, I've got some wine back home. I can go get it and, and bring it here." Why is it that only Our Lady is is the one who's able to pick this out and takes the steps necessary to resolve the situation? It's surely because she must have had a greater unselfishness, a greater love than the other people who were at the feast. So what I think is important for us to notice is if Our Lady had had other dispositions, how she would not have done this. If Our Lady had been selfish, like surely many of the people there, she would not even have noticed that they were out of wine. Was, was perhaps she one of the very few who noticed that they were running out? Um, th- this is like couples who are perhaps unaware of the needs of their spouses. Husband doesn't notice that his wife is struggling, or the wife does not notice that his, her husband is having difficulties at work. Or they, the, the, the parents don't notice the needs of their children. They don't understand what their children need. And, and so they're completely oblivious to the common good of their own family. They've given themselves in marriage for the good of their family, but they aren't savvy enough to pick up what their family is going through because they're too focused on their own interests. They don't have that perception. What if Our Lady, Our Lady had, had been lazy, um, it, where, where she had perhaps noticed that this was going on, that there was a lack of wine, but she was just like, well, you know, it's not really my job. Um, I, I, it, not, not, it's not really my concern. That's, that's really for them to take care of, not me. Um, and again, sometimes couples can be like this. They, they might notice things in their family that, that are going on, but they won't take the steps necessary in order to resolve them. Um, their children need to be disciplined, but they're just like, eh, I'm, I'm not going to, to take the effort to do that. Um, their children need to be educated. Like, mm. Again, they just sit back. They need to give their time to their children, or they, they need to, to expend their money, and they just do not, they, they recognize these things, 
but they do not put forth the effort in order to execute them and so take care of the, of the needs of their family. If Our Lady had been spiteful, if um, she had been mean-spirited, if he, she had said to herself, oh, you know, this, this young couple, they didn't plan for their marriage as they should have, they didn't get enough wine, and they need to be taught a lesson. This will be a lesson for them. They'll have this embarrassment on them that they were out of wine at their own wedding feast, and so that will be good for them, you know, and it serves them right. And again, in, in marriages, sometimes there is this mean spirit. Sometimes um, husband or wife, they're trying to score points on one another R- rather than, than looking to see how can I assist my, my spouse, how, how can I aid them, how can I elevate them, assist them, whatever. They're thinking, how can I score points on them? How can I make myself look better than them? And uh, they're happy at the embarrassment of their spouse or the trials of their spouse or even their children. As it stands, Our Lady, she notices their want. She's willing to take action, and she does so in a most charitable and discreet way. This one of the beautiful things about this story is that Our Lady not only takes the means necessary to resolve the situation. She not only condescends, she who's the queen of heaven, she says to herself, I'm going to ask the son of God to work a miracle for this couple, to give them wine. She not only says that, but she says, I'm going to do it in the most discreet way possible. I do not want to embarrass them. I do, I, she realizes that nobody else is picking this up. They're not getting it. They're just stuck in their own party atmosphere. She's noticing it, and she says, I don't want, I want to make sure that the rest of the people still don't notice. And so the, even, the, even the chief steward, it says, the gospel says the chief steward himself is not realizing what has happened, that um, the water has been turned into wine. There's, there's one other thing I want, I want to point out about this scene that, that is instructive, I think, for married couples. And this is that... Our Lady not only gives an example of charitable unselfishness, but she also gives a a clear sense of the authority that parents have over their children. This is really extraordinary because, of course, her child is God himself. But she knows her rights as a parent. And this is important because of the fact that Today, like so many other things, we want to transform all institutions whatsoever into democratic institutions. But it, it just so happens that there are some institutions that have been instituted by God that are not democratic. The church is one of those institutions. The church is monarchical. The family is also monarchical. There's king and queen, and there's subjects. That's the way families work. And you can't transform them that you can't ever transform the, the family into a democratic institution where everybody is on the same level. It's not been designed by God to be that way. You can't change human nature. Our Lady understands that she, be, because she is the parent, she has the right to command her son. She's not going to, she doesn't ask her our Lord, is extraordinary. She doesn't ask our Lord, what do you want to do? Our Lord says, it's not my hour, but 
Our Lady then has him work the miracle. She doesn't ask his permission because she is his mother. And it's, it's not good when, when parents are, are ask, always asking their younger children, what do you want to eat? Would you like, what would you like to have for, for your, would you like, would you like macaroni and cheese? Or would you like broccoli? Instead of, instead of telling the children, you've got to eat this. Parents know what is good for their children. Children don't know what's good for their children. They shouldn't ask their, their kids, what do you want to eat? What would you like to do? Where would you like to go to school? What do you want? As if they're violating the rights of their children by telling them what, what they need to do. This is, this is so important for, for parents to command their children to do what is good, especially when they're younger. When, when they get a bit older, perhaps um, they start assisting their children to make good choices while having the final say. But your children must be trained in that unselfishness that they will need to take on their life's vocation. And that's done by telling them what to do and developing in them that habit of denying their own will. So, my dear faithful, on this Sunday, which presents to us this beautiful scene, um, perhaps you can ask yourself, what, what are the ways in which God is asking you to give yourself, to sacrifice yourself in your state of life, in your married state. Find the way, the ways that, that God wants you to give of yourself and, and be very generous in, in doing so. Especially ask Our Lady for that unselfish and generous heart which, which she herself possesses. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.